Greetings. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 36 of the Legacy Drawing Board, the podcast journey and experience that wants you to build a stronger, more meaningful legacy by embracing good design principles. I'm your host, Ron Fong. A good host makes uh, his guests feel welcome, and I do want to welcome you to this podcast for those of you who are new listeners. It's important that I'm clear in terms of the intent because I do value your time. The vision of this podcast is to have people see themselves and their world through the lens of legacy design and building. The mission? To introduce people into the world of design and have them emerge as storytellers. And finally, the purpose, the driving force. There is a perpetual need for leadership that calls us to edify others through enduring relationships. By listening to this podcast, I hope that you will build a stronger, more meaningful legacy, and I hope you emerge as a storyteller because we all have stories to tell, and there will be a call or there's a need for leadership in all instances, and we are all leaders. Today's episode is an interview that I conducted with Ron Chambers, Dr. Ron Chambers. He's a national leader in the uh, subject of human trafficking. He serves as the program director for the Dignity Health Methodist Family Medicine Residency Program, and he's been doing that for uh, some time. He also serves as the physician advisor for the Dignity Health Human Trafficking Response. And within these duties and responsibilities, he's created Medical Safe Havens, which serves survivors of human trafficking, and how that serves uh, the survivors is that he has made it part of the resident physician's education and training, and he'll explain more about that. And you talk about legacy, you talk about leadership in terms of impacting lives. The medical safe haven has touched over uh, 3,000 lives uh, who were victims of human trafficking. So I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Ron Chambers, and I thank you for his time for this interview. I'm very pleased to have uh, for my guest today uh, for the Legacy Drawing Board, Dr. Ron Chambers. And Dr. Chambers has a very impressive credentials. Just want to go through them briefly. He's the program director for the Dignity Health Methodist Family Residency Program in Sacramento, chair of the Family Medicine Department, medical director for Mercy Medical Safe Haven Clinic, and physician advisor for the Dignity Health Human Trafficking Response. And there are more accolades, more achievements to Dr. Chambers' resume, but I think I'll just leave it at that for right now for the sake of time. So, Ron, I know you're extremely busy, and I want to thank you for joining uh, the podcast. Thank you for having me here, Dr. Fong. Well, Ron, you, uh, as program director, you train uh, future primary care physicians, family medicine residents. How long have you been doing that? I started working as a faculty member at Methodist uh, Family Medicine Residency Program back in 2008, um, and I took over actually as program director here in 2010. So going on 13 years, 13 going on 14 years, actually. And in those 13 years, uh, Dr. Chambers, approximately how many residents have you encountered? 
Well, we work with residents both from our program, and then we have um, both visiting residents and medical students. So within that time frame, we're probably residents of my own, um, somewhere in the range of about 90. Okay. And you are the creator of the Medical Safe Havens, which deals with human trafficking response. Can you give us a, a sort of walkthrough of how that came about? Um, sure, sure. So it's kind of interesting. Um, it, it, this started back in 2014 and 15 when basically uh, community agencies, law enforcement, um, players working within the human trafficking domain, um, within our community and our society, our country, um, got together and they they asked actually healthcare systems for assistance because they were basically the last one to the table to try and help address this issue. And they recognized an obvious need um, for us to be involved in. Um, Dignity Health listened and uh, became, I, I think, pretty objectively, uh, the most robust initiative and program um, tailored towards responding to individuals that have experienced human trafficking. Um, the program began back in 2014-15 under the direction of Holly Gibbs, um, and she still leads the Human Trafficking Response Program uh, for Dignity Health, but she um, she's a survivor herself, and when it was announced, um, I happened to be at a physician leadership meeting where they were kind of unveiling it, and I got her contact information and texted her and said, hey, Holly, I really think this is something that we should involve our residents in and it should be part of their education. And she was fortunately located here in Sacramento, California. And so uh, we got together and um, over the next few months and years, um, worked very collaboratively, um, you know, under her tutelage and direction, um, helping develop and write up protocols for identifying and responding to individuals in our acute care settings. And then also, um, creating systems that we could identify and respond appropriately to individuals that were being trafficked in our outpatient clinics and residency clinics and other clinical settings. And so I guess that's where the impetus for the program began from a hospital system basis, at least as far as I'm aware. Um, but being pretty involved in it throughout this time frame, what's very interesting is this hospital system really is a leader, you know, at the national scale for creating and implementing a response program like this. Um, and I'm, I'm, I think we're very fortunate that we've had um, buy-in from senior leadership within the hospital system um, to allocate the necessary resources to be able to train our staff. Um, but what's also interesting, and please stop me anywhere along the way here if I'm just rambling, but there's very few hospitals and hospital systems in this country that have tried to tackle this issue. And the vast majority that have have basically taken it up to this point of trying to create identification and response programs. But it, it was interesting to me kind of coming in from a, a primary care lens um, that it seemed very intuitive or obvious that if we were going to be encountering individuals with days, weeks, months, years, you know, even decades of trauma, abuse, exploitation, they were going to need our ongoing help um, from a medical standpoint. Um, much beyond just that initial identification and response. And so concurrently, while we were writing those protocols, we established within our residency program and our residency clinic, um, what we called a medical safe haven that was able to provide longitudinal care uh, for these same individuals. And um, we created completely vastly different workflows um, 
have basically developed and then published um, our best practices on the medical adjuncts we use, um, the way that we are able to encounter and treat this patient population. And I, I guess if you fast forward to today, um, I work on a number of the national committees that um, addresses this issue from a medical standpoint. And I believe, to my knowledge, we are the highest volume clinic in the country doing this type of work. And by quite a bit. Um, it's it's um, a setting where we're currently, at least in our clinic alone, seeing somewhere between 700 to 800 patient visits per year. And then um, across our hospital system, we've been expanding our clinical model here to other residency programs throughout California. And um, we're currently seeing somewhere probably in the range of maybe 14 to 1800 patient visits per year. Um, and that's ever growing as, as we're able to replicate this model throughout our hospital system and our residency programs. So um, it's a pretty expansive model. Very impressive work, Dr. Chambers. And I know you're touching many lives, uh, not only for the patients, but I think for your residents as well. And given your vast experience for this, uh, from this, what lessons have you taken away as a physician, as a faculty member, uh, regarding this work? Well, I I think that um, I think that residents are uniquely suited um, to be in a position in their careers where if we can impact their thinking, their patient care, um, you know, their approach to this issue. We have the opportunity to, you know, uh, to basically impact the next 30 years of their career. And that's a huge ripple effect that I always talk about when we go and give um, discussions on this, you know, around the country. It's there's it's funny how the same themes come up continually when we're um, at the kind of national meetings and health and human services or other, you know, large organizations are discussing how does the medical field interact with human trafficking? Where do we play a role? And especially in this longitudinal care space, you know, the idea there is, well, how do we create clinics that are able to do this on a large scale? It's it's a very complicated patient population to take care of. And, um, you know, the, the existing centers tend to be very heavily specialized and um, utilize, you know, significant grant funding. And so how do you create clinics that are able to do this? How do you train the doctors to be able to provide this care? And you know how do you pay for it? And and to me, it just again, it just makes absolute sense to put this into residency clinics. You know, in, in family medicine alone, we have over 700 residency programs in this country, and a large, large majority of them already have clinics established aimed at treating marginalized or vulnerable patient populations. So we have these existing clinics. Um, our experience implementing this care, taking care of this patient population is that it's very low cost. It's a very low utilization process. We're able to provide excellent care and actually get pretty incredible patient outcomes, which I'd be happy to talk to you about um, for an extremely low cost. And so we, we have the clinics, we have a low cost model and able to do this. And then again, the, the real bonus of putting this into residency programs is that we're training the doctors of tomorrow to be able to identify, respond to an appropriate care for this patient population. Um, you know, I have 30 residents in my program. That means 30 physicians graduating out each year. They're going out into their communities. They're replicating medical safe havens. They're able to identify and respond to appropriately within their clinical settings, implement protocols within their hospitals. And so we get this ripple effect um, that I think really can change that dynamic. And so putting it into programs like 
um, primary care setting residencies just makes absolute sense. And if you wouldn't mind, can I just step back for a second on the issue? Um, Absolutely. Trafficking and kind of why we're even thinking about it in this space. And um, I think it's important to, to recognize right off the bat just how prevalent um, trafficking is in our society. And it's an illegal underground issue, so it's always going to um, be unrecognized or, you know, the statistics, the statistics on it are going to be difficult to interpret and they're going to be criticized very often. But if you draw from a number of the more reliable sources, um, you can see that a teenage female in this country this year would be about 40 times more likely to be trafficked than she would be to die in an automobile accident and about 100 times more likely to be trafficked than she would commit suicide. And I think those are really important pieces of information for me in primary care, because and especially in medical education, um, you know, there's there's going to be in every medical school, school pediatric curriculum, you know, during the HEADS assessment, the psychosocial um, interview that we have with our adolescent patients, we're taught to talk to them about, we document in the charts, you know, automobile safety, suicide prevention, but there's nothing in our medical education, nothing in our residency education that's telling us to talk to our patients about human trafficking. And here it is a problem incredibly more likely to be affecting them than their lives. Now, concurrent with that, in medicine, we are one of the very few people in society that have the opportunity to interact with uh, people that are being trafficked while that's occurring. Um, very few people have this opportunity. There was a study in the Annuals of Health Law in 2014, where 88% uh, of female sex trafficking survivors reported that they saw a physician while they're being trafficked, none of them had any interventions done. There's another study out of Oakland, California, where 77% of sexually exploited youth not only see their doctor, they see their doctor regularly. And so um, half have been, um, a, a third are on prescribed meds and half have been hospitalized. So if you take these types of statistics, and they may be lower in labor trafficking, um, immigrant populations, and other, you know, demographics. But if, if we just kind of take those themes that we have this incredibly prevalent issue, and then we in medicine have this opportunity that almost nobody else has, like, why aren't we doing something about it? And again, that's why if we can put this into residency education, and if you just think about those statistics coinciding with um, changing the, the paradigm of um, trafficking education within our residency programs, I mean, you could have that 88% of trafficking victims that while they're being trafficked encounter a physician, but now that physician's informed, they know how to identify them, they know how to respond to them appropriately, you know, and care for them, that you've, you've changed the game essentially on um, the exposure and identification of this otherwise, you know, relatively under, underground issue. So I, I truly believe this belongs in medical education across the country. Um, and I, I keep kind of saying that we're replicating that within our system, and we are. We're doing it in a very robust, sustainable way that I think is, um, you know, having large impacts. But we also work with every other, I mean, not every other, many, many, many hospital systems and um, residency programs across the country. I've worked with um, very closely, flown out, met with CEO and leadership of um, Northwell Health in New York. Um, to Colorado, to Arizona, you know, Nevada, Washington, uh, Florida. So all across the country, we are helping other systems and programs do this work. But but Dignity really has taken the lead, and our residency programs are um, 
are creating these kind of workflows and, and ways to truly care for this patient population that changes their lives. You list some very sobering statistics, and I'm sure you present a great deal of statistics to uh, perhaps board members or other organizations. But I think what really captures people is that when you have stories, um, because it just that personal one-on-one -on -one where it's no longer the numbers or the abstract, but it's you know a, a person's story. Do you, do you find your residents being able to tell stories of why this is important? Oh yes, absolutely, and um, and I do think that that is one of the um, difficulties with this issue. You know, is is before I started seeing patients, I attended lots of human trafficking discussions and talks and lectures and didactics, and I always got this kind of thirty thousand foot view of of what human trafficking is and it felt scary and it felt nebulous. You know, it was this ambiguous topic. How could I do anything to do it? But just even seeing that first patient, you know, all of that ambiguity just goes out the window. And now you have this experiential learning of truly caring for a person that's had these experiences. And that's where you see that kind of, again, transformation or paradigm shift in the physicians and the residents themselves, um, where you know that this is going to make an impact on them and being able to address this issue in their careers moving forward. It's not from the lectures they saw. It's not from the didactics. You know, it's not from the speakers. It's from treating those patients. And so, I mean, those stories we have by the hundreds um, and it's they make huge impacts. Absolutely. You train you talk about training the future physicians and within family medicine. A key component of being a physician is leadership. How has the awareness of human trafficking within your residency program, how has that contributed to your residents' leadership development? Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's been the exponential growth, um, by far the largest, the largest growth that I've seen in leadership in our program um, in the time that I've been here is through this single program alone. Um, and that takes various forms. It's, you know, scholarly activity. Um, it's not presenting a poster. Our residents very often present hour-long presentations at FMX or, um, you know, the AFP national conferences. They publish papers. Um, they um, take on leadership positions with some of our community agencies, our safe houses, our um, domestic violence shelters. They um, Within the hospital system, it was interesting how much it elevated them among the emergency room doctors, among the obstetricians, you know, the various specialists in the administration, because, you know, they truly are the experts in the field. Um, after they've worked with and seen this patient population, again, they have more experiential learning um, caring for these patients than some of the leading experts in the country. Um, so they absolutely get uh, these opportunities. And actually, they're not even just nationally. Um, through our hospital system, we've been able to work collaboratively with, um, with hospitals uh, within some of the poorest, most impoverished regions and in India with the highest human trafficking populations in the world. And I could, um, you know, tell you one of the residents who went over there to India with me twice um, working on these projects, you know, she, she not only had an impact giving lectures, didactics, and treating patients over there um, on the, you know, dealing with human trafficking, 
but also working concurrently with um, with their lawyers, the legal systems, their policymakers, you know, directly affecting women right, women's rights for the most populous country in the world. You know, for a resident to have an opportunity like that to affect policy and, you know, changes within within an entire country, it's kind of unheard of. And but again, there's so few people in medicine addressing this issue, those opportunities present themselves. And so yeah, we've had I mean more we used to struggle to get scholarly activity. Now, you know, we have it out our ears because of again the opportunities with this program. Um and so we found that really, really beneficial. Have you had residents who graduated and perhaps three, five years down the road, they come back and they talk with you and they've shared reviews about their experience and what the residency experience was, how it impacted them. And these is why I come back and say, thank you, Dr. Chambers, because this has changed my life. You know, what I, what I, what I really love is I love residents that are coming back and telling me that they've, um, they've replicated this program in their clinical settings. I mean, that's, that's the, the biggest, I, you know, that's, that's where I find the most, I guess, satisfaction um, in kind of the work that we do is when we see our future physicians going out and then they come back and they say, Hey, I'm a hospitalist up at Sierra Nevada. We're putting these protocols in, or I'm, you know, now I'm working at an FQHC over in the Bay Area, and we've got this medical hit safe haven system running, and we're starting to see patients. And, you know, that that to me is, um, that's what makes it all worth it, um, because it's absolutely, um, you know, it, it couldn't be more rewarding being in medical education and hearing those types of um, stories and feedback from the residents we graduate. And I, I guess, you know, concurrent with that is, um, is the patient outcomes. I we, we used to really love all of the anecdotal reports we would get from patients, from their family, from their safe houses, their caseworkers, law enforcement, you know, that this, this program that we were setting up was having such a huge impact on them and being able to um, help them on their road to recovery. But it was really, really cool this last year. Um, we were able to publish a paper and we actually got the Common Spirit um, Vision Award for it um, nationally, but basically what it showed was, and I'm going to step back again just for a second, um, misconceptions around trafficking. A, a lot of people come, walk into this discussion or think about this issue and they, they feel like, or there's a perception that um, say we find somebody in the emergency department that's being trafficked, um, they want out of that situation, we get them assistance, we get them into a safe house, you know, and it's a, it's like problem solved, job well done, pat yourself on the back. But really, that's that's just the start of that person's journey on you know their road to recovery. Um, we work with community agencies here in town, one of which um, is incredibly incredibly um, well versed in this and deals with tons and tons of patients that are being trafficked. Brings us a lot of their clients. Um, they have a very robust program that gets uh, people out of trafficking situations. And then gets them in, you know, employment opportunities, um, work study programs, um, educational plans, parenting classes, whole wraparound services. So over the 18 months to three years, somewhere in that time frame, they go through this program with this community agency. 
by the time they graduate, they have stable housing, they have economic plans, they have state, so they're geared up and their, their chances of going back into a trafficking situation are very low by the time they graduate, very low. Um, but their success rate, even when somebody comes out, they're in a safe environment, in a safe house, is about 15%. And again, I think that speaks to misconceptions around this issue because it's not just getting out, that's, that's a big piece of the puzzle, but having the tools and the wherewithal to be able to stay out, that's where a lot, a lot of the work needs to be done. And that's really where I think we, we play a big role because um, the analogy I would use is if you think about um, so many patients that come into us, you know, they, they've lived lives of trauma, abuse, and exploitation. You know, many, many of my parent patients um, remember being sold for sex when they were five years old. So this is something that has been continuous throughout their entire developmental years. Um, and you take somebody whose entire life has been, you know, pedal to the metal, foot on the gas, trauma, abuse, you know, very high intensity situations continuously. And you get them out and you put them into a safe house. You can imagine, you know, how unfamiliar that is. They're hearing crickets at night. And of course, what we see happen clinically is they bolt, they leave the place, they run back to a trafficking situation or substance use or something, you know, fight or flight back. It's, we actually wrote a paper called Complex PTSD and Trauma Course Detachment, where we kind of walked through the neurodevelopment and biology that we, um, that we believe lies behind some of this. Um, but it's almost like stress-induced reward pathways that get withdrawn once somebody's into a safe house. But basically what I'm getting at is if we have this incredibly low success rate, once we've already identified somebody, got them into a safe environment, how do we modify, how do, how do we alter that? And so we use a lot of things when somebody comes into us, a lot of different tools, um, counseling, different workflows. We handle medical and mental health issues. Um, we really mitigate trauma bonding, trauma course detachment, and complex PTSD symptomatology. Um, and what we published this paper that we got the award on was that if a patient comes to our clinic versus any other clinic in town, if they're seen by us and our providers, um, they have about a 437% increased chance of getting out and staying out of trafficking. And I'm extrapolating that by completing that community's program of recovery. Um, but that's crazy data. You know, I mean, that's like, you don't see success rates like that anywhere in this field. And um, the application of trauma-informed care and these models of care that we've developed, those are what we're using to train the other physicians at these other programs, you know, to be able to spread um, this care so that we actually have success with this patient population. So, you know, training the physicians, we've produced studies that shows that their skills, knowledge, and attitude improves and re they retain that um, throughout their, their learning and, and after they graduate from the program. Um, so we we went through and created not a 30,000 foot view, but a way that's directly, you know, applicable to being a physician caring for this patient population. And we created tip sheets, workflows, medications, ICD-10 codes, the whole nine yards and how you can walk through these visits. Um, then we created the medication adjuncts and the list and how we're going to do this and then we published papers on what's the kind of neurochemistry behind it that we think we're seeing. And here is the outcomes that we're seeing in this patient population. And we're working on, you know, uh, kind of our holy grail study that's going to show the economic impact. Basically, we see this happen in the charts over and over again, where patients have 100 ED visits, emergency department visits before they're seen by us. They have no insurance. And this is all a big money loss to the system. Um, they come to our doors, we see them, we get them established in a Medi-Cal plan as we're seeing them, 
and you see those ED visits plummet to you know zero or one a year, um, and now they're an insured patient getting primary care um, services and mental health services within our walls in a much more appropriate setting. And we see their their clinical outcomes, you know, um, dramatically improve. And really, I think a lot of what we do with kind of I'm sorry I'm jumping around quite a bit here, but a lot of what we do with the treatment plans and the medications and the things we're doing is they're all short term, and we we talk to the patients about this. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's what we're trying to help. Here's the symptoms you're having. Here's how we think this. And we're thinking three, six, maybe nine months on some of this stuff. But what we're doing is we're buying them a night in the safe house and then two nights and then a week and then a month. And meanwhile, they're getting trauma therapy and they're getting these ancillary services, you know, and all of the tools that they need to get on these long-term roads to recovery. You know, a little prazosin is going to take away their nightmares at night and decrease their adrenergic load. A little um, a little Seroquel is going to decrease the emotional ability and maybe, you know, increase a little sedation so at night they can get through the night and sleep. And then an SSRI is going to help executive functioning processing of that PTSD symptomatology. So we can use just a few medical adjuncts along with the other treatment modalities we're utilizing and, and really change the course of these patients' um, you know, recovery. Um, I mean, we've even actually recently, and this has been a really rewarding, it's actually been very emotionally taxing. I had no idea it was going to be um, as intense as it is, but we've um, a laser uh, company contacted me. Um, my wife's a dermatologist and she connected me with them and they've donated um, uh, tattoo removal lasers to us. And then they're giving us like $200,000 worth of training and they want to give them to every one of the clinics we can open in the country because about 75% of our patients, 75 plus percent of our patients have been branded by their trafficker, our sex trafficking patients as a sign of ownership. So you know, hearing a patient just last week as we took this tattoo off her hand, you know, her saying that was put on me when I was a child. And this is the first time I'm going to be able to look at my hand and not, you know, have that brand that it my trafficker put on me. That's a big deal for her recovery. So, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that goes into this, but um, it's definitely rewarding and seeing people's lives changes. I mean, there's almost no other place in medicine where I see people's lives change in such positive ways as we do through this program. Thank you for painting a very vivid picture, Dr. Chambers. Going forward, what do you see are the next chapters in your legacy? Well, I um, I was really fortunate um, to have such good guidance, you know, from from uh, people when we were beginning this work, um, like Holly Gibbs. And then I was really fortunate um, as we got some grant money, our local Mercy Foundation, just amazing the support that they've given us um, and the, the funding that they raised for us that allowed us to then hire my uh, the program director right now, Jennifer Cox, um, who has then subsequently got Department of Justice and other grant funding is, and has built a team so that as we're going through and replicating these, these um, medical safe havens, we're doing it in a way that's really integrated with their communities, you know, with their agencies. Again, their safe houses, domestic violence shelters, the law for all of the people that need to be so that we're not just putting up these clinics and saying, hopefully people will come. Like when they're opening their doors, it's a very multidisciplinary, like holistic system that's being built so that when that first patient walks in, um, they're getting 
really what I feel like is gold standard care from day one um, from physicians that are truly educated and trained on the issue. So what I really hope is that Common Spirit is being wonderful about helping us promote and work this program into other primary care settings. But I would love it if we can make this hospital system, you know, one of the largest non-for-profit healthcare systems in the country, really lead the way and put this into all of our, our um, GME programs. And then my ultimate goal is this doesn't get owned by us or our hospital system, but that this care and this training, this education um, is in every primary care residency across the country. Um, that That's kind of where this ends for me, at least. Um, that's That's what I would love to see someday. The movie, The Sound of Freedom, was released relatively recently, and I think it showed it had a spotlight or gotten a conversation about human trafficking. For the people who are listening to this who are not in the medical profession, what they what can they do to help combat human trafficking? You know, I I think that um, I think that there's some really um, proactive discussions that can happen, even starting at, you know, a young age about um, self-worth, human worth. Um, because, you know, a lot of what we're doing is, unfortunately, it's reactive to the problem, right? I mean, we're taking the people in that have already been through trafficking situations that have been traumatized. So if people were listening in and they were wondering what they could do, you know, I would encourage discussions to happen very early on. Um, in our society. And I mean, I even think about like going to like local junior highs or high schools and talking about what is this, you know, what is the reality behind um, commercial sexual exploitation? And, you know, it, I think that some of this stuff is nuanced and I'm not judging anybody that's, you know, involved in voluntary commercial sexual activity, but I, I do think that there's a misconception between, you know, what you might think about with Pretty Woman, the movie, and the reality of what's really happening, um, you know, on Backpage and so many of the litany of um, escort or websites that sell individuals, you know, that end up being my my patients that are trafficking victims. So I think having those discussions, edu educating um, individuals from a very young age, addressing the future buyers, you know, that the males in our society tend to be the vast majority of buyers of um I'm, I'm really kind of harping in on, on sex trafficking, not labor trafficking, but they tend to be the culprits and the buyers. And, um, and so, I mean, instilling some of those morals, values, understandings at an early age, I would hope would translate to um, kind of changing the perception of, of what this stuff is in our society. So um, I don't know if I'm being a very good or doing a very good job at discussing what the lay person, you know, just walking into the issue can do. I think one thing you could absolutely do is memorize the number 888-3737-888. Um, that will take you to the human trafficking hotline. You could also text be free. That'll take you to the national human trafficking hotline. And that's a really useful thing um, to, to have in your head, because I, I will say that once you begin down this road of becoming educated, on trafficking, you, you see it everywhere in our society. I mean, 
I'll be at Target in the self-checkout line and there'll be somebody ahead of me that I'm like, oh, she's being trafficked, you know, or it was just at Safeway in the produce section. There's two individuals being trafficked in the produce section. Part of that's because I, I recognize the tattoos, you know, and I their branding tattoos and their person they're with is going to be the trafficker or one of the subsidiaries. But I, I, I think the issue is that a lot of people that are being trafficked may not initially self-identify as victims either. And so there's this kind of whole, you got to think about when this started for them developmentally. If this has been happening since they were a child their whole life, they may not be self-identifying as a victim, but you can always assist somebody without causing harm by helping them memorize 888-3737-888, because if they wanted to call that number, if and when they're ready for help, that's going to that's gonna connect them with local resources, um, safe houses, agencies working within their community that can help them with trafficking. So that's probably the like most tangible thing I can think of that um, somebody could do. Dr. Chambers, want to thank you for your time. I know how busy you are given all your duties, your responsibilities in terms of training uh, the next generation of physicians. Thank you for your leadership and for sharing your legacy. So any last words, Dr. Chambers? No, I appreciate you, you know, uh, inviting me on your on your show here today, Dr. Fong. Thank you for having me. Take care, Dr. Chambers. Clearly, Dr. Chambers has established a very meaningful legacy in terms of his work, his work as a healer, his work as an educator, and his work for as an advocate for human trafficking victims. I think about what he said in terms of when he presents to people. He doesn't lead with statistics. He leads with stories. And I mentioned this previously in episode 26 of the podcast, the power of stories. And this gives me an opportunity to go back to my one of my favorite quotes from uh, author John Barth, who said, quote, the story of your life, it's not your life, it's your story, end quote. And Dr. Chambers understands this. He understands that when he wants to connect with people, to help educate him about human trafficking. He's not going to bury his story with statistics. He's going to bring that story. He's going to bring people's lives to the forefront and that he teaches that very well for his residents. And you think about his impact. He talks about building models that people can take with them. And that's what his residents have been doing as they graduate from a family medicine resident to an independent physician through all parts of the country, they are incorporating, they're taking with them the medical safe haven model. And that's having that ripple effect of touching more lives, having more opportunities for people who have been victims of human trafficking to get in touch, to increase the likelihood of being in contact with a healthcare provider who understands uh, the situation of human trafficking, understands the dynamics, knows knows what to look for, and is able to help them in terms of breaking that cycle. So again, just very powerful work that Dr. Chambers is doing. And I go back to the beginning of that podcast when I talk about vision, mission, and purpose. Dr. Chambers, I think, hits on all of these uh, all these points. I mean, his vision is that he sees people who are victims and he wants them to design or have a new starting point for their legacy. That their legacy is not going to be just as victims, but as survivors. 
and that they will no longer be held bondage to human trafficking. His mission is that he does have people come out storytellers, whether it's the patients he sees or the residents that he has trained. They come out, they tell stories. They tell stories about this horrific situation in which people are buying and selling people, uh, basically bondage and slavery. And again, it's the impact of these stories that get to us, that get to us because it touches our heart. And from our heart, we go forward because we don't want this to continue. And finally, his purpose. He is building leaders. He's building leaders. He's um, exemplifying leadership. And he's having that enduring relationship because he continues to see patients. He's a clinician. And he continues to stay in touch with his residents as they go forth uh, with this um, medical safe havens. So a truly remarkable and inspiring legacy. And to remind those out there, what can you do if this is going to be part of your legacy in terms of helping recognize people who are victims of human trafficking, helping break the cycle, helping people be able to tell a different story, a story that they thought they could, there was impossible to tell, to have them be able to tell their stories, uh, to encourage them, to help them with their courage, to come forth and be able to tell their story, which is very powerful. And finally, your emergence as a leader, because you see the situation, you're aware of it, and you're going to contribute to the eradication, if possible, or at least the reduction of this burden on, on our society. Because you you understand that you are a leader or you're in a leadership position when you see someone in need. Please remember these numbers that Dr. Chambers talked about. The hotline for human trafficking is 888-373-7800. And the other option is texting HELP to be free, which is the number 233-733. Again, thank, uh, thank Dr. Chambers very much for his time, his insight, his inspiration, and for his legacy. Now, if you're interested in exploring how to build your legacy further through design, uh, I invite you to visit my website and sign up for a complimentary session on how we can work together. I'm also available for uh, group presentations. So again, please contact me for details. My email is rfong at truenorthshepherding.com. Um, thank you very much for your time. Um, I always treasure this when I realize uh, that someone is taking the time to listen. And I hope this provides uh, some positive impact on your lives. Uh, for my next episode, I'll take on the topic of marriage. Um, you'll have to wait, and, or you'll have to wait and uh, hear as what uh, the aspects are I'll be talking about. Until then, please give your legacy the time and attention it deserves, because when you do, we all benefit. Mm -hmm.